0: My favourite places are the the small places, really well run, still really good service. They're working with the produce of the area, and the dishes that that they've learned from their from their ancestors. Certainly bringing them into into the 21st century, but essentially they're keeping that tradition going, and I I think that's a that's a really great thing.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. During the 1950s and 60s, Italian families migrated to Australia en masse. It sparked waves of Italian eateries, glorious subcultures in our communities, and helped shape the way we all eat at home too. There have been many with Italian heritage that have left an indelible mark on our culinary landscape over generations. And some continue to raise the bar in regards to dining like an Italian down under. Stefano Manfredi is known fondly in Australia as the godfather of modern Italian cuisine. Stefano, how are you?
0: I'm good, Anthony. Pleasure to be here.
1: We're honoured to have you on the show. How, how does it make you feel when the media and those in the profession refer to you as the Godfather of uh, modern Italian cuisine?
0: Um, look, it's fine. Look, you, you you know, if you if you have a long enough uh, working life, uh, there are many monikers that get bestowed on you, both good and bad. Um, and you know, God Godfather's fine. You know, it's sort of. Recalls the, uh, you know, the, the the mafia as well, which is, you know, as an Italian, you have to sort of bear that on your shoulders because it's uh, it's it's part of the culture. Um, no, so you know, it, it, the short answer is, you know, it's it's fine, it's it's not a big deal, it's it's whatever the whatever the media, uh, you know, uh, calls you, I guess.
1: Well, your influence has been amazing over um, many decades in Australia. You are uh, originally born in uh, Lombardy in I- Italy. Uh, t- tell us, take us back to there. What's the cuisine like in that region, and and um, what was it like for your family?
0: Yeah. Well, look the. I was born in 54 and uh, I was six years old when we left Italy. So the first six years of my life was was spent in a small village called Gotolengo in the province of Brescia. Now Brescia is on the the great Lombard plain um, that uh, is full of rice fields, uh, piggeries, uh, grana padano, uh, you know, parmesan making. Uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, And Brescia Brescia itself was an old um, Roman colony called Brexia. So there are, are, you know, Roman ruins right in the middle of the city. And it's a very wealthy area. Um, I can remember back when I was a kid there that uh, it was full of mulberry trees for silk making. So silk was a really big, big deal back then. Uh, that was one of the one of the products and look you know I remember the childhood there was fantastic uh you know my mother and grandmother and you know the women uh of the village which was you know still still a rather small village today um, would always be preparing food for special occasions I remember you know uh festivals and events there that that were just Laden with all different types of food. Now, the the food up there, because you're you're right underneath the Alps, um, it does snow there in winter, so it gets very, very cold. Um, In those colder months, there were things like, uh, you know, cotechino, bollito misto, polpettone, you know, risotti, uh, those sorts of things. And in, in the summertime, there were there were lovely sort of, you know, fresh salads and uh, frogs' legs fried and dusted, uh, snails, um, you know, lots of lots of offal. But you know, the the cuisine, Italian cuisine is, if you go up and down the boot, um, is primarily made up of uh, based on pulses and and vegetables so we didn't have a lot of meat we only had you know meat on on special occasions I remember that um you know my my mother used to order uh bananas for my my brother and myself and they they would come from Africa um and they were a a special thing that we would have once every sort of couple of months you know because they'd have to come from from such a long way away but um you know, we had cherries and apples, and you know all the, all the sort of cold weather things before before the sort of globalization of food happened. And uh, and you know that um, the um, just to give you an example, the, the the gnocchi that my mother would make and my grandmother would make would be the same all the time because the potatoes were grown nearby. And they were a known quantity. Uh, They would always perform in exactly the same way. The moisture content was always exactly the same. And they knew exactly how to make, how how much flour to put in the gnocchi uh, to make them uh, super soft, but still sort of holding together. Whereas, you know, coming to Australia, the potatoes are all different. Even even today, if you get a, for example, a, a pig-eye potato or a spunta, one week it could come from, it can come from uh, Victoria. The other week can, it can come from Tasmania. They all have different uh, levels of of moisture. So you have to be very very careful in in terms of, you know, adding adding flour to that to that potato to give you the right results. So, you know, um, we, we were dealing back then with known quantities.
1: What was it like as a child of Italian heritage growing up in Australia with the, the food of your family, but also um, immersing in the Australian culture as well?
0: Uh, yeah, it was very interesting, um, you know, got into lots of fights uh, <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we used to be called, you know, the garlic munchers. And uh, Luke, look who are the garlic munchers now. <laughs> um, it was interesting because back then uh, I would invite my friends from school back to my place and, you know, my mother would always have something, you know, because the first thing an Italian asks a visitor, are you hungry? You know? <laughs> and uh, even if you're not, and I guess it goes, you know, across Jewish culture and across, you know, all sorts of different cultures, uh, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't the case here. It was, um, um, you know, when I went to my friend's place, places to eat, uh, there was always, you know, roast lamb, or no, it wasn't actually roast lamb back then. It was the '60s. It was roast mutton, uh, and it would be dry, and uh, and you know pretty bad, pretty pretty awful, for my taste, and uh, and it would be mashed potatoes. Usually, I don't know, um, very sort of bland mashed potato, and uh, and then when. When those same friends would come to my house, and my mother, you know, was either making gnocchi or she was making, you know, uh, a ragout with freshly made pasta, or 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 pumpkin tortelli, or you know, she would make uh, she would make a hare salmi, uh, you know, or rabbit, or something like that. I mean, you could you could see that that. Uh, my friends' palates were just, you know, awakening. <laughs> was, and, uh, you know, it was popular to come, come back to my place. But, um, uh, you know, my brother and I picked up English within a year of being here. So, and as you can, you can tell now, I have this quite broad Australian accent, having grown up in the western suburbs of Sydney and having gone to Blacktown, uh, primary school in Blacktown, Boys High School, um, but you know I speak I speak Italian fluently with with an Australian accent, which is is quite exotic when I go back go back to Italy.
1: <laughs> what what led to uh, you entering the industry and and starting as a chef?
0: Well, uh, after after high school, um, I uh, I did pretty well. I was um, I, I loved English. I loved English literature. I, I always um, loved writing, doing essays, and uh, that sort of thing. Um, I went to university and decided to do a Bachelor of Education, uh, and I taught. I taught for a while. Um, I majored. I, ma- I majored in English literature and uh, loved that. And um, I taught for a while, and then. I while I love the kids, uh, I didn't really like the the, uh, the universe of uh, of school education. Um, and I decided I'd, I'd always been cooking um, I decided uh, uh, that I would um, leave and, and you know eventually open a restaurant so so I started. Um, once I left, I started working in a couple of different places. Uh, you know, I, I think my first job was making um, scones and roast beef sandwiches at, uh, at the Observatory Cafe on Observatory Hill in, in Sydney. I'd, I'd never made scones before, but, you know, at the interview I said, yeah, sure, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was there for a while, then, you know, uh, worked in a couple of, uh, different places, a uh, vegetarian restaurant in Bondi, close to where uh, Sean's Panorama is now. Um, and then I got a job at uh, You and Me, working with Jenny Ferguson, uh, which was one of the sort of Nouvelle Cuisine restaurants at the time. Um, my, my modus operandi was, you know, seeing how restaurants were run Rather than learning to cook, because you know I had had the history and and uh, I had my mother's cooking that you know was a reference point for me, and then I had you know I had my Italian chef uh, heroes, people like Angelo Paracucchi, Gualtiero Marchesi, you know that sort of that that sort of level back then. Um, to, to sort of guide me um, and I, I worked with Jenny for a while and uh, and that was fantastic. Uh, it opened my eyes to the emerging uh, high-end produce that was starting to happen because, you know, you, you, you have to realise that back then you, you really could only get two types of potatoes, w- washed and unwashed. You could only no. This is uh, it's funny now, but but it's true. Um, You could only get two types of mushrooms: buttons or or uh, or or caps. You know (laughs) that 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 was it. Um, And there were some new things starting up. You know, there was the whole sort of uh, start of the. This was the beginning of the eighties. There was a start of this sort of nation uh, sort of looking at um, whether we have an Australian food culture or not um, so that 80s decade and it was there at you and me that I met Neil Perry uh, he was passing through he he'd just been a hairdresser um, that was his uh, occupation and he was going around to the best restaurants to to sort of, uh, you know, skill himself up, and um, with a view to um, to working at Baron Joey House. Um, so when I when I finally opened my f- my first restaurant in 1983, um, you know, it was learning on the job basically, and we were we were in a back street of Ultimo um, for 13 years.
1: Wow. You ended up renaming the restaurant to the Restaurant Manfredi, and mo- and moving it as well to the Rocks.
0: Yeah, well, what we did was was um, the first five years we'd we'd always when we were planning the restaurant it was always known as the restaurant because we couldn't find a name for it. So when we when we opened it was just the restaurant, and uh, and it was so confusing to people. You know, it's, it was like you know, who's on first, what's on second, which restaurant, the restaurant. Yeah. But which restaurant, the restaurant. Um, so I was confusing. So we just tacked on, um, Manfredi on, onto the end of it and, uh, and opened up in, I think it was October, 1983 in a one, one way st- on a one way street off a one way street off another one way street. And, uh, it was really difficult to get to, but, um, we were fortunate in that Fairfax were right there and they th- this was a time when um, uh, they they still had expense accounts and we we basically became their their um, uh, their dining room and we saw the rise and fall of uh, uh, you know the National Times and um, you know the War, uh, what's name? Warwick Fairfax. What? No, not Warwick Fairfax. The the young guy. He, he sort of com- completely annihilated the the whole Fairfax uh, empire. And um, uh, you know, we had uh, lots of people go through there. Um, and it was there there at at, at one point because um, I had I had started a a parallel career. Of, uh, of writing, uh, and I I was writing for, uh, in the late 80s, I was writing for the Follow Me group, who had a, uh, they used to have magazines called Follow Me and Follow Me Gentlemen, And then they started up a food magazine uh, called Plenty, uh, which was uh, edited by Helen Greenwood. And she asked she asked me to contribute, so I started contributing uh, some articles. And um, and then John Alexander, who was heading the um, Financial Review at the time, um, he used to dine in the restaurant all the time. And he said to me one day, oh, look, uh, I'm uh, I'm starting a uh, a weekend." Magazine for the financial, uh, for the yeah for the for the paper, and uh, uh, I've read some of your pieces. Would you like to write for them? And I I said yes, and, and it was it started a more than twenty year career uh, working with um, doing uh, opinion pieces, and then finally you know doing columns and, uh, that sort of thing for, uh, for various magazine, uh, various papers, uh, uh, including, um, you know, um, the Sydney Morning Herald, etc. etc. And, um, yeah, so after that, um, uh, um, uh, you know, I've written six books and, and, um, uh, uh, I'm working on a couple, of, a couple of other books at the moment. So, um, you know, that's, that's never sort of stopped. That's been a parallel career that I've, uh, I've always really, really enjoyed doing after, you know. I, I used to write after I got home from service, uh, dinner service. So I'd be up till maybe, you know, three o'clock in the morning sometimes working on a deadline.
1: Well, that period of time was amazing in our culinary history um, and Restaurant Manfredi won uh, Three Hats, uh, which is a very um, coveted and rare feat for for restaurants. Uh, you also opened Belmondo as well. well. What was it like being part of that big movement of food?
0: Well, it was really exciting times. It was, you know, the 80s. It was greed is good. <laughs> Decade. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, look, we got, uh, our third hat towards the end of, uh, our time at the restaurant. Uh, I think it was 95. Um, it was interesting because, um, Italian restaurants, for Italian restaurants, it's very, very difficult to get three hats. Um i've got I've got some ideas on why why it is difficult but um you know it's not it's not a showy cuisine it's not like dots and dashes and you know uh instagram pictures and that sort of thing you know um even though back then you know social media wasn't really invented or around um, it is difficult and it was difficult to get to get to that high sort of ranking, um, and it's still, you know, there, there, there's never been another uh, Italian restaurant to get three hats in Sydney. Um, we were the only one, so it's 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 not only rare to get three hats, but it's even rarer for an Italian restaurant to do so. Um, I mean, Italian food is very very simple. at At the it it doesn't. Rely on showiness. It relies on flavour, and the utmost sparkling freshness of its ingredients. That's that's it. Um, it does rely on very good technique, but the technique you you can't really see the technique because it's 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 actually the the flavour and the marriage. Of, those, of the flavours on, on the plate that are important and, um, and basically the shopping and the sourcing of the ingredients. Um, you know, whereas when I started uh, my career in Sydney, um, there was a lot of French food um, to the fore, um, which relied on a lot of sauces and a lot of masking um, which is all very good i 'm not denigrating it, but um, i I think that Italian food is much more difficult to get to get recognised at the at the height
1: of um, of you know culinary excellence you 've uh, personally won uh, many accolades as well, including receiving one from uh, the former Italian prime minister. Um, what was it? What was it like? Some of the some of the big accolades. What's been your um, proudest moment?
0: Oh, um, look professionally. I think I think um, it was interesting getting getting invited to to Italy to 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 uh, to Rome to actually receive um you know this accolade from uh, from the the president of the republic um it was you know big fanfare and pomp and all that sort of stuff but um look you know it's it's not at the basis of everything um you don't do this for the accolades you do it because you want to make people happy the greatest the greatest satisfaction is you know seeing seeing somebody eat with joy one of your one of the things that you've you've cooked you know at the, at the basis of of uh italian cuisine is the you know is is the is the table and people who come around and you know are enjoying um this conviviality that you've created um and that's you know that's been one of the one of the other things i I've actually I left the kitchen quite early in my career. Actually, halfway through Belmondo. Belmondo we we opened in 1996, and after two or three years, I decided that I wanted to go out um, and uh, and interact with with diners. So I would go around the tables. And uh, introduce myself and talk to people, and you know, and receive compliments and abuse at the same same time. Um, it's uh, it's it's interesting. I think I think chefs should go out and and face their diners um, if they're able to. Uh, I know that I know that generally speaking there's not a lot of chefs who like to do that they like to, they like their domain to be the kitchen and that's it but um, it's it's actually very satisfying because you do you do get that instant feedback and it's a very very good uh, marketing
1: tool in two thousand and seven uh, you took the helm of bells at killcare and um, made a huge impact uh, tell us about that restaurant and um the sustainability uh, practices that you had there
0: yeah that that was uh, that was an interesting um interesting uh, uh project to do uh it was owned by John Singleton and um and uh we we were um um contacted to um to be involved and um and so you know my my whole thing there was this this kitchen garden which was it sounds a bit a bit twee now because everybody's got a kitchen garden Um, uh, but back then it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't a a really big thing Um, we we got the first we received the first sustainability award um, by the good food guide back then Um, and we had room we had room to to put in a big garden uh, we had chickens uh, we had fresh eggs for breakfast because we had room rooms there so people could stay overnight so um, and breakfast was included in the you know in the tariff and people would come up and they'd have these fresh eggs and lovely things from the garden um, and um, you know, we would we would highlight certain things that were coming into um, into season from from the vegetable garden, and uh, I found myself doing tours of the vegetable garden, and <laughs> you know, um, and people people would sort of. Uh, I mean, we didn't charge people for the tours or anything like that, but it was just a, a great thing to do, um, and it was it was. Seen second, secondarily as a um, as a great marketing tool, but it wasn't. That's not why we did it. But it ended up being um, a really powerful uh, marketing tool, and we got the uh, we got the front page of the um, the uh, Financial Review, the Fin Review, uh, which was a you know, a uh, commercial paper and it was nationwide and there was a picture of me and the chickens on the front. And I remember that, um, you know, uh, John Singleton was over the moon because, you know, he's a marketing guy. So we get the front page, it's worth millions of dollars, you know, nominally as, you know, as, as, uh, as uh, marketing, and he was kind of over the moon because you know chickens on the front page of the Financial Review. Um, so yeah, so that was that was interesting. And then then we opened uh, Pretty Beach House, which was, you know, a, a three room uh, exclusive sort of um, upper end resort. It was a really interesting, really interesting. Um, project that one um, and with all of these look we there were there were design elements too I mean one of the one of the other things that I, I've really loved um, during my career has been has been designing restaurants um, and um, um, you know using artisans whether they're they're, uh, you know, they make tables or they blow glass or they, um, they're making knives. I remember for Pretty Beach House, uh, I went to, I found a knife maker on my travels in Italy uh, in uh, Le Marche, which is on the east, central east coast of Italy. And uh, it was a tiny little shop. He worked with his uh, son. And uh, he was making these beautiful sort of bone-handled knives. So I got him to, uh, uh, to make six, and uh, I picked them up a year later when I was back there. <laughs> um, and we put them in the, into the dining room. So if anybody ordered, um, you know, if, if we had um, uh, meat on the menu, they, everybody would get a knife. Uh, one of these knives and um so many people would ask me oh can i order these knives where do you get them from and i said no you can't you know i'm i'm i it took me it took me a year and a half to get to get these knives here and he doesn't he doesn't make them unless you to order unless you go there and um and uh, and, and, uh, and see him and talk to him, and then he decides whether you can have any of his knives or not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, Italy's full of that sort of thing, you know. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a nation, 60 million artisans.
1: You had, a, you had a fair break from restaurants in Sydney, but um, then The Star um, really launched a big sort of restaurant offering with multiple restaurants, and you became part of that offering with a huge restaurant with to Tell us about that restaurant and sort of what it took to pull together.
0: Well, it was, that was a huge project, huge project, but we had a big budget to do that. Um, so we used the best of everything. We we, we got everything. We had a $300,000 uh, budget just for art. And so um, we, work, we work closely with, um, uh, our long time architectural collaborator and interior designer Luigi Rosselli um, and Luigi Luigi had come here with the american italian american firm uh, architectural firm who did the new parliament house in canberra so he was he was running that project at at the time and uh, he he fell in love with with an Australian Woman and uh, raised a family here, and we we knew him way back in in the restaurant days. And the first thing we designed with him was a chair for the restaurant. Um, and uh, we've actually just given a, a few chairs over to um, the Powerhouse Museum for their they're putting together a permanent collection of um, for Australian gastronomy. Um, so, so we, you know, we, uh, use so many different, um, uh, Australian and international, uh, artisans, the, all the glass sculptures and the lights that we did there that we, we took up the $300,000 art, uh, budget and we got, um, a very famous, um, American, Italian uh glass blower called Dante Marioni and he worked with um Luigi Rosselli in putting in in making these beautiful sort of blown glass sculptures that were our lights in the bar and and it, on some of the tables and in the private dining room. And um he was he was trained by one of the Venetian masters and um, um they are just beautiful um, so we used you know we use lots of you know we used uh, Lino Alvarez for, for our pottery uh, for our some of our plates um, we designed some of our plates and I had them made uh, overseas uh, we used bone china plates um, it was it was a really really fun project and and um, and it was uh, it was fantastic. Look, and uh, out of that came, um, you know, a, a number of really great chefs who are gone on going on to to making their names now. Um, you know, Francesco Manelli is over at Mode. Uh, he's doing some really great things. Uh, Dionisio Randazzo is just about to open up um, where Lucio's was in Paddington. He's doing a um a restaurant based on his home region of uh of sicily and i'm really looking forward to that so um you know the 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 good thing about having had a long career and having lots of chefs uh, work with you is that they then go on and do their own thing uh and i'm sure you've had You've had the same uh, experience with uh, a number of chefs who have been around a long time on on your podcast.
1: One of the um, main influences obviously from Italy is the cuisine and the impact it's had in Australia. You've seen it change over um, decades. Where where do you see Italian cuisine and its influence in Australia at the moment?
0: Well, it's it's interesting because at the high end they're trying to I feel like they're they're trying to get the accolades of, you know, the top restaurants. There's there's the the, the sort of three hat thing. So they um, the guys at the top are trying to to sort of um, work Italian cuisine into the model of the. Globalist cuisine—that's that's kind of going on everywhere at the moment, even in Italy. Um, I don't think that's a personally. I don't find it satisfying um, as a diner to go in and 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 see that. I'm I'm much more interested in in um, uh, in the the traditions uh, that are being modernised. Rather than um, you know trying to mix cuisines from all over the world um, that's also happening in Italy mind you at, at the very top um, but uh, you know when 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 I go to back to Italy and I, I take tours there quite a bit uh, I've been doing it for a, a good twelve years now um, we go to various uh, parts of Italy and um, the the tours are both cultural and and um, and cuisine based um, and you can you can see that that yes there are there are some restaurants which are really 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 you know high class high-end dining um, but the further the further up you get to that sort of Fine dining area, the less it has to do with Italian cooking, Italian food, which is which is strange. Um, so hence my, um, uh, you know, my, my favourite places are, are are the places, are the, the small places, really well run, still really good service. Uh, really nice and clean, and but they're doing they're doing the produce. They're working with the produce of the area, uh, usually of the village, um, and and the dishes, you know, that that they've learned from their from their ancestors. Certainly bringing them into into the twenty first century, but. Um, and often, you know, making them lighter and a little bit, um, you know, smaller in size, Um, but essentially they're they're keeping that tradition going. And I I think that's a a really great thing.
1: You've been in the industry for um, quite a while now, but you still have your um, fingers in many pies in regards to restaurants. You've been part of the uh, West HQ development. Tell us a bit about that and and what your plans are in the coming years yeah well um uh,
0: while at the star um, we had balla um, and i got uh, I got interested in 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 ferments and flour and water and um, um, all that sort of stuff and i i I traveled to Italy and and went and visited some of the, the new wave uh, pizzaioli over there, the, the, the guys who make pizza. Now, um, you know, at, at, at the time and still, uh, the Naples-style pizza uh, is very dominant here in, in Australia. But um, 15, 15 or, or, or so years ago, up in the north, what happened was that a number of um, chefs got interested in in pizza and they brought their chef's eye to reworking, going back to, uh, you know, ground zero of pizza making. So what they did was they... Um, Especially, I'm talking especially about people like uh, Simone Paduan, um, uh, Gabriele Bonci, um, you know, those sorts of people who, who went back and looked at, okay, what flour are we using? Um, the Naples-style pizza uses double-O flour. Now, double-O flour is highly refined, um and basically doesn't add anything add any flavor to to the it's it's just basically a base to hold the topping um which is fine which is fine but uh it wasn't always like that i mean once upon a time uh they would have had to use stone ground flour and it would have been flour from the local area, usually Gragnano, which is quite close to Naples, and and produces a lot of a lot of flour for pasta, um, and um, and so over the years that became more and more and more refined, and uh, the the price of pizza went down, um, and was always really a street food there, which is fine. Um, but then they, you know, roller mills, uh, steel roller mills came into effect. It meant that flour became cheaper um, and uh, and so you you have the modern uh, Naples pizza using 00 flour. Okay, so going back to the New Wave pizza, Italy has got so many different types of flour and so many mills that are producing flour that, you know, you've you've basically got an industry there where you can get uh, flour that is specific to what you want to do. And uh, I have a friend in Piemonte, he's one of the best pizzaioli in Italy, um, a guy called Patrick uh, Ricci, and uh, he he actually has flour milled for him on a small batch um, basis, and some of his you know he uses all different types of flour, and some of his um, his doughs are are just fantastic. You know they are uh, they are in themselves uh, a thing of beauty, and um, and also they you know. You go back to to uh, long, slow fermentations, not necessarily using um, a sourdough technique or lievito madre, or licoli, as it's called in, in, in Italy, um, but, all, but also using, um, you know, um, indirect fermentation. By indirect fermentation, I mean, you know, you start off with, with a pre ferment something like a bigger or a poolish and then you let that uh ferment and then the day after you make your main main dough so what's what generally happens with um uh, naples type style pizza and most pizzerias they do a direct fermentation where they they throw everything in into the um uh into the bowl mix it all up and uh that's your, that's your dough, basically. But um, if, you, if you let the dough do its job by using a secondary fermentation, um, it will give you a much lighter product, a, a much lighter base, a much lighter dough. And um, it, it sort of mirrors the, uh, the rise in, in sourdough baking. So I've be, I've become interested in in, in ferments and <laughs> um, and also you know I've, I'm I'm interested in bread but I there's no way I would open a bakery God it it it's if you want a, a, a job harder than being a chef try the baker's job <laughs> <laughs> um, but I am I, I do I do bake a lot of bread at home. Um, and, you know, I, I've fallen in love with the yellow bread of the, of the south of Italy, which, um, I mean, basically, you know, the, the, the south of Italy used to be uh, primarily wheat. Um, now durum wheat, we we produce a lot of durum wheat in Australia, but there are so many different varieties of durum wheat, um, and Sicily has got a huge amount. Um, so if you go to Sicily or or um, or Puglia or Basilicata, the south of Italy, you will, mm, in many instances, be served yellow bread, and you know some people don't even pay it any mind you know they they look at it and go oh it's yellow but um if you sort of dig into it uh yellow bread was what they made in in the south before you know before um um, you know that 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 sort of ease of ease of transportation between the north and the south Um, and it's it's a different sort of bread. It's 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 lovely. We, there's nobody here in Australia that I know of that's that's making a hundred um, percent durum wheat bread, and it's beautiful. But if you go, there's 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 a very famous bread called Altamura bread from Puglia. Altamura is a is a small mountain village, and uh, I mean there are ovens there that are still producing Altamura yellow bread um, there's one I know of uh, that goes back to 1423 it's still going <laughs> it's it's uh, it's 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 a really really old oven so you know, it's quite highly prized so this this was this was another project this is another project that I have uh, in terms of a writing project I'd like to go uh, and Document the breads of Italy from the beautiful, sort of you know, buckwheat and um, uh, those sorts of wheats, you know, cold climate wheat breads from the north all the way to the yellow breads of the south. There is so much bread happening. Um, I've got the modernist bread, huge, um, you know, uh, five volume monster um and in it there are i think two recipes for um for for you know durum wheat bread um uh, and that's it and there's no it's it's like it, it's like a a blind sort of area a blind spot for bread making that i think should be um should be
1: used a lot more should be explored a lot more Well, it sounds like you should perhaps open a bakery so we can uh, all enjoy No,
0: (laughs) Anthony, no, absolutely not.
1: (laughs) Well, Stefano, we've loved having you on uh, Deep in the Weeds today. Absolutely honoured to um, hear your stories, and I know there's many more, but um, please keep in touch and perhaps we can catch up again down the track and hear a few more yarns as well.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having
1: me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast